Hello. Hello. And welcome to Infinite Cast, your number one literary criticism slash U.S. Open uh, recap podcast. <laughs> There's got to be actual tennis podcasts that are that are, would do a way better job at such a thing. Yeah, I'm sure. We, I mean, we should get uh, we should do a guest feature with a with a tennis podcast. <laughs> what is a tennis podcast name? I um. Uh, service a tennis podcast. Oh, love that, love that. Um, yeah, uh, that's that's a little classier than yeah. calling it like Deuce, Deuce, <laughs> Drop uh, Deuce. Forty Love. Um, sure, Greenfelt a tennis podcast. Mm-hmm. Greenfelt. Um, yeah, and we'd get a, a like a, some actual tennis podcasters on, and uh, my only interview question would be like, so so what's the deal with tennis these days? <laughs> yeah, what's up? What's, uh, the, what's the moment? Tell us the exciting stories. Um, we got some stuff to talk about at the back end. Uh, we have some actual uh, first-hand reporting out in the world reporting that I want to relate to you. Infinite Jess related okay. r- reporting. I have a I have a theory that I'd like to run by you uh, that but, I worked out last week. But until then, we're just pouring big glasses of DiSorono, uh and <laughs> getting into uh, and getting into the, yeah. the book. Uh, only you could hear the ice clinking in our glasses. Yes. Uh, what do you think? Shall we? Yes. Let's get in. Okay. It's a it's a grab bag. Sorry, today it's a it's a grab bag of random bits. Okay, great. Uh, all right, so we have thirtieth April slash first of May, year of the Depend Adult Undergarment. The choreography of Interface had settled into the form of steeply smoking, his bare arms crossed, going up and down slowly on the toes of his high heels, while Marath hunched slightly in his metal chair, shoulders rounded and head slightly forward in a practice position that allowed him almost to sleep while still attending to every detail of a conversation or wearisome surveillance. He, Morath, had drawn his plaid blanket up to his chest. It was increasingly chilly at the altitude of the shelf. They could feel the remains of the USA Sonora Desert's heat rising past them into the clotted spangle of stars that were above them. The shirt Morath wore beneath his windbreaker was not of Hawaiian type. <laughs> Marath, weird yeah, Marath remained unsure in this time of what exactly it was that Hugh Steeply of USOUS wished to learn from him or verify through Marath's betrayal. Near midnight, Steeply had given oh, him... Oh, God, I forgot the last time that we were talking about these guys. They were outlining his like complicated quadruple system crossing. of quadruple crossing. Yeah. I got I to gotta say, I... This, I'm enjoying this segment, but I'm this is the one that I'm like kind of tracking the least, you know? Yeah, uh, I understand. It's it. I remember it being the most boring. And I, and I of read. course, uh, I assume that it is. You know, it is purposely, like obtusely complicated. What is actually going on between these guys? Because that's like the fucking point, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, near midnight, Steeply had given him the datum that he Steeply had been on the personal marital leave over his recent divorce and was now back in the field of duty, wearing prosthetic breasts and woman journalist credentials assigned to cultivate some of the entertainment's alleged filmmakers, relatives, and inner circles. Mm-hmm. Morath had made gentle fun of the inoriginality of a journalistic cover, then later less gentle fun of Steeply's cover's false name, expressing humor doubts that the meaty, electrolycized face of Steeply would be responsible of launching even one ship or vessel. Nice. Burn. Zing. Uh, we move on. There'd been that first brutal winter night early in the Onanite temporo-subsidized era, soon after the interlaced dissemination of the man who began to suspect he was made of glass, (laughs) that himself emerged from the sauna and came to Lyle all sloppy blotto and depressed over the fact that even the bastards in the avant-garde journals uh, pressed, uh, uh, were complaining that even in his commercially entertaining stuff, Incondenza's fatal Achilles heel was plot. That... (laughs) That we are, here we are on page three seventy five. That uh, here that Incandenza's <laughs> efforts had no sort of engaging plot, no movement that sucked you in and drew you along, which takes us to endnote one forty four. E. G. C. Ursula Emmerich Levine, University of California, Irvine, watching grass grow while being hit repeatedly over the head with a blunt object. Fragmentation and stasis in James Owen Condenza's widower, fun with teeth zero gravity tea ceremony and prenuptial agreement of heaven and hell art <laughs> cartridge quarterly volume three numbers one through three year of the purdue wonder chicken back to the text mario and ms joel van dyne are probably the only people who knew who know that found drama 
uh, which takes us to end note 145, and I'll get there in a second. And anti-confluentialism both came of this night with Lyle. Uh, to end note 145, and this is a bit long. Okay. A transcript fragment from interview series for a putative Moment Magazine soft profile on Phoenix Cardinal professional punter OJ and Condenza. Ooh, his name's OJ. Interesting. Uh, Wait, what is it? Orange James there? and Condenza came out in '96. Is that that? It has to be intentional. Oh in some my way. god! So it's so uncouth. It's so uh, so courant. Yeah. By putative Moment Magazine soft profile writer Helen Steeply, 3rd November, year mm. of the dependent all undergarment. So this is where, I'm, I know we've only seen on background that Helen has been sniffing, or, Helen aka Hugh has been sniffing around Oren, and Oren has a crush on her because she's more than a woman to him or whatever. <laughs> but this is the actual uh This is false, the interview. This is the interview, yeah. Yes. A, tra- a transcript of the interview. And rarely do we honestly see these intertextual things like so back-to-back, like the Hugh yeah. Steeply... Directly referencing trying to, uh, like, uh, 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 investigate the incandenza fa- uh, family. And then, like, the next paragraph, the actual evidence of yeah. that. Um, and also, th- for whatever stylistic reason, they've chosen not to put the actual questions asked by Helen. They simply uh, note it with Q. So okay. you'll, you'll pick it up with context clues. Q. Well, there are odd sorts of consolations in having somebody go progressively bats in front of your eyes, such as, for example, sometimes the mad stork would go off on things in sort of a funny way. We always thought he was funny a good bit of the time. You've got to remember he came at entertainment more from an interest in lenses and light. Most arty directors, I think, get more abstract as they go on. With him, it was the opposite. A lot of his funniest stuff was very abstract. Are those earrings real copper? Can you wear real copper? Hugh, you've got to remember that he came out of all these old artish directors that were really nipaz a la mode anymore by the time he broke in. Not just Lang and Brisson and Darren, but the anti-new wave abstractors like Frampton, wacko nucks like God, Godboo, Goodboo, uh, <laughs> anti-confluential directors like Dick and the Snows, who not only really belonged in a quiet pink room somewhere, but were also so self-consciously behind the times, making all sorts of heavy art gesture films about film and consciousness and isness and diffraction and stasis, etc. Most extremely beautiful women I've ever met complain of getting a sort of itchy green crust when they wear real copper. So the tenure jockeys and critics who are hailing this millennial new orthochromatic neorealism thing as the new, uh, the real new avant-garde thing were getting tenure by blasting Dick and Godboo and the Flying Snow Brothers and the Stork for trying to be avant-garde when really they were self-consciously trying to be more like après-garde. I never did get straight on what orthochromatic means, but it was very trendy. <laughs> uh, plus, uh, but the Mad Stork talked a lot about intentional atavism and retrogradism and stasis. Plus, the academics who hated him hated the artificial sets and the chiaroscuro lighting, which the Stork had a total fetish for weird lenses and chiaroscuro. After the thing about the Medusa and the Odalis came out and the joke, and the film establishment theory queers were holding their noses and saying Incandenza is still mired in this late century self-referencing, unentertaining formalism and unrealistic abstraction. After a while, himself, the stork, in his own progressively bats way, decided to get revenge. He planned a lot of it out uh, at McLean Hospital, which is out in Belmont, which is where himself had almost his private reserved room by then. He made up a genre that he considered the ultimate neorealism and got some film journals to run some proclam- proclamatory edictish things he wrote about it. And he got Duquette at MIT and a couple other younger tenure jockeys who were in on it to start referring and writing little articles in journals and quarterlies about it and talking at art openings and avant-garde theater and film openings, feeding it into the grapevine, hailing some new movement they called found drama, this supposedly ultimate neorealism thing that they all declared was like the future of drama and cinematic art, etc. Talking about memeing something into reality. Yes, exactly. Because I'm thinking if you like copper stuff and little Aztec suns, (laughs) there's a small place down in Tempe where I know the owner and he has some incredible little copper pieces we could parp down and have you look at. My own theory is it takes an incredibly natural complexion to be able to wear the baser metals, though it might just be an (laughs) allergy thing the way some women react and some don't. Q. What found drama was, 
And you've got to keep in mind that Duquette and a Brandeis critic named like Posner, who was in on the revenge, each got a mammoth grant for this. And the Mad Stork got two smaller ones somewhere, grants to go cross country to graduate film programs, giving turgid, theoretical, deadly serious lectures on this found drama. And then they'd come back up to Boston and the Stork and the couple uh, critics would lay up drunk and invent new found drama theoretical lectures and chortle and laugh until there was evidence it was time for himself to go back to detox again. Q. Like a family nickname, Hal and I either called him himself or the sad stork. Uh, the moms was the first to say himself, which I think is a Canadian thing. Hal mostly said himself. God knows what Mario used to call him. Uh, who knows? I said mad, the mad stork. Q. No, see, there weren't any real cartridges or pieces of found drama. This was the joke. All it was was you and a couple cronies like Leith or Duquette got out a Metro Boston phone book and tore a white pages uh, page out at random and thumbtacked it to the wall and then the stork would throw a dart at it from across the room at the page and the name it hit became becomes the subject of the found drama. And whatever happens to the protagonist with the name you hit with a dart for like the next hour and a half is the drama. And when the hour and a half is up, you go out and have drinks with critics who like chortlingly congratulate you on the ultimate in neorealism. Uh, Q. You do whatever you want during the drama. You're not there. Nobody knows what the name in the phone book's doing. <laughs> Q. The joke's theory was there's no audience and no director and no stage or set because the mad stork and his cronies argued, in reality, there are none of these things. And the protagonist doesn't know he's the protagonist in a found drama because in reality, nobody thinks they're in any sort of drama. Q. Uh, almost nobody. That's a very good point. Almost nobody. I'm going to take a chance and just tell you I'm a little bit intimidated here. Q. I'm worried this might sound sexist or offensive. I've been around very, very beautiful women before, but I'm not accustomed to them being really acute and sharp and politically savvy and penetrating and multi-leveled and intimidatingly intelligent. I'm sorry if that sounds sexist. It's simply been my experience. I'll go ahead and simply tell you the truth and take the chance that you might think I'm some sort of a stereotypical Neanderthal athlete or sexist clown. Q. Absolutely no, no. Nothing got recorded or filmed. Reality being camera free, being the joke I'll again underline. Nobody even knew what the guy in the phone book had been doing. Nobody knew what the drama had been. Although they liked to speculate when they'd go out after the time was up to have drinks and pretend to review how the drama went. Himself usually imagined the guy was sitting there watching cartridges or counting some pattern in his wallpaper or looking out the window. It wasn't impossible maybe even the name you hit with a dart was somebody dead in the last year and the phone book hadn't caught up and here was this guy who was dead and just a random name in a phone book and the subject of what people for a few months until himself couldn't keep a straight face anymore or had had enough revenge on the critics because the critics were hailing. Not just the critics in on the joke, but actual tenure jockeys who were getting tenure to assess and dismiss and hail. They were hailing this as the ultimate in avant-garde neorealism and saying maybe the stork deserved reappraisal for a drama with no audience and oblivious actors who might have moved away or died. A certain mad stork got two grants out of it and later made a lot of enemies because he refused to give them back after the hoax was like unveiled. <laughs> the whole thing was kind of bats. He spread the grant money for found drama around a couple of local improvisation companies. <laughs> it's not like he kept the money. It's not like he needed it. I think he especially liked the idea that the star of the show might have already moved away or recently died and there was no way to know. <laughs> uh, that's, that's the end note. <laughs> back to the text. Uh, and we're back after a paragraph break. It's not like Boston AA recoils from the idea of responsibility, though. Cause, No responsibility yes it seems like it all depends on which way the arrow of presumed responsibility points the hard-faced adopted stripper had presented herself as the object of an outside cause now the arrow comes back around as tonight's meeting's last and maybe best advanced spe basics speaker another newcomer a round pink girl with no eyelashes at all and a base head's ruined teeth gets up there and speaks in an arless South Boston brogue about being pregnant at 20 and smoking eight balls of freebase cocaine like a fiend all through her pregnancy, even though she knew it was bad for the baby and wanted desperately to quit. 
She tells about having her water break and contractions start late one night in her welfare hotel room when she was right in the middle of an eight ball she'd had to spend the evening turning unbelievably sordid and degrading tricks to pay for. She did what she had to do to get high, she says, even while pregnant, she says. And she says even when the pain of the contractions got to be too bad to bear, she'd been unable to tear herself away from the base pipe to go to the free clinic to deliver, and how she'd sat on the floor of the welfare hotel room and free-based her way all through the labor, that new Joel girl's veils billowing in and out with her breath, Gately sees, just like it also was during the last speaker's description of the statue's orgasm in the catatonics dysfunctional Catholic mother's devotional photo, and how she'd finally delivered of a stillborn infant right there, alone on her side like a cow on the rug of her room, all the time throughout still compulsively loading up the glass pipe and smoking, and how the infant emerged all dry and hard like a constipated turdlet with no protective moisture and no afterbirth material following it out, and how the emerged infant was tiny and dry and all withered and the color of strong tea and dead, and also had no face, had in utero developed no eyes or nostrils and just a little lipless hyphen of a mouth, and its limbs were malformed and arachnodactylic, and there had been some sort of translucent reptilian-like webbing between its mucronate digits. The speaker's mouth is a quivering arch of woe. Her baby had been poisoned before it could grow a face or make any personal choices. It would have soon died of substance withdrawal in the free clinic's Pyrex incubator if it had emerged alive anyway, she could tell. She'd been on such a bad base binge all that pregnant year. And, but so eventually the eight ball was consumed, and then the screen and steel wool ball and the pipe itself smoked, and the cloth prep filter smoked to ash, and then of course likely looking pieces of lint had been gleaned off the rug and also smoked, and the girl finally passed out, still umbilically linked to the dead infant. And how when she came to again in unsparing noonlight the next day and saw what still clung by a withered cord to her empty insides, she got introduced to the real business end of the arrow of responsibility. And as she gazed in daylight at the withered, faceless, stillborn baby, she was so overcome with grief and self-loathing that she erected a fortification of complete and black denial, like total denial. She held and swaddled the dead thing just as if it were alive instead of dead, and she began to carry it around with her wherever she went, just as she imagined devoted mothers carry their babies with them everywhere they go, the faceless infant's corpse completely veiled and then hidden in a little pink blanket the addicted expectant mother let herself buy at Woolworths at seven months. And she also kept the cord's connection intact until her end of the cord finally fell out of her and dangled and smelled, and she carried the dead infant everywhere, even when turning sordid tricks, because single motherhood or not, she still needed to get high and still had to do what she had to do to get high. So she carried the blanket-wrapped infant in her arms as she walked the streets in her velvet fuchsia mini pants and halter top and green spike heels, turning tricks, until there began to be strong evidence as she circled her block. It was August. Let's just say compelling evidence that the infant in, in the stained cocoon of blanket in her arms was not a biologically viable infant. And passersby on the South Boston streets began to reel away white-faced as the girl passed by, stretch-marked and brown-toothed and lashless. Lashes lost in a substance accident. Fire hazard and dental dysplasia go with the free-based terrain. And also just hauntedly calm-looking, oblivious to the olfactory havoc she was wreaking in the sweltering streets. And but her August trick business soon fell off sharply, understandably, and eventually word that there was a serious infant and denial problem here got around the streets, and her fellow Southie baseheads and street friends came to her with not ungentle, arless remonstrances and scented hankies and gently prying hands and tried to reason her out of her denial, but she ignored them all. She guarded her infant from all harm and kept it clutched to her. It was by now sort of stuck to her and would have been hard to separate from her by hand anyway. And she'd walk the streets shunned and trickless and broke in an early stage substance withdrawal with the remains of the dead infant's tummy's cord dangling out from an unclosable fold in the now ominously ballooned and crusty Woolworth's blanket. Talk about denial. This girl was in some major league denial. And but finally a pale and reeling beat cop phoned a hysterical olfactory alert into the Commonwealth's infamous Department of Social Services. Gately sees alcoholic moms all over the hall cross themselves and shudder at the mere mention of DSS, every addicted parent's worst nightmare, DSS, they of the several different abstruse legal definitions of neglect and the tungsten-tipped battering ram for triple-locked apartment doors. 
In a dark window, Gately sees one reflected mom sitting over with the Brighton AAs that has her two little girls with her in the meeting. And now the DSS reference clutches them reflexively to her bosom, one head per bosom, as one of the girls struggles and dips her knees in the little curtsies of impending potty. But so now DSS was on the case and a platoon of blandly efficient Wellesley alum DSS field personnel with clipboards and scary black Chanel women's business wear were now on the prowl in the South Boston streets <laughs> for the addicted speaker and her late faceless infant. And but finally around this time, during last year's awful late August heat wave, evidence that the infant had a serious bio of viability problem starting presenting itself. Uh, boo, boo, boo. Sorry, I got uh, sorry. Presented to go so forcefully that even the denial-ridden addict and the mother could not ignore or dismiss it. Evidence which the speaker's reticence about describing, save to say that it involved an insect attraction problem, makes all the things things all the worse for the empathetic white flaggers, since it engages the dark imaginations all substance abusers share in surplus. And but so the mother says how she finally broke down emotionally and olfactorily from the overwhelming evidence on the cement playground outside her own late mother's abandoned project building off the L Street Beach in Southie, and a DSS field team closed in for the pinch, and she and her infant got pinched when special DSS spray solvents had to be sent for and utilized in order to detach the Woolworth baby blanket from her maternal bosom, and the blanket's contents were more or less reassembled and were interred in a DSS coffin, the speaker recalls as being the size of a Mary Kay makeup case. And the speaker was medically informed by somebody with a clipboard from DSS that the infant had been involuntarily toxified to death somewhere along in its development toward becoming a boy. And the, spe uh, the mother, after a painful DNC for the impacted placenta she'd carried inside, then spent the next four months on the locked ward of Metropolitan State Hospital in Waltham, Massachusetts, psychotic with denial-deferred guilt and cocaine withdrawal and searing self-hatred, and how when she finally got discharged from Met State with her first SSI mental disability check, she found she had no taste for chunks or powders. She wanted only tall, smooth bottles whose labels spoke of proof, and she drank and drank and believed in her heart she would never stop or swallow the truth, but finally she got to where she had to, she says, swallow it the responsible truth, how she quickly drank her way to the old two-option welfare hotel window ledge and made a blubbering 0200 phone call, and here, then so here she is, apologizing for going on so long, telling a, trying to tell a truth she hopes someday to swallow inside so she can just try and live. When she concludes by asking them to pray for her, it almost doesn't sound corny. Gately tries not to think. Here is no cause or excuse. It is simply what happened. This final speaker is truly new, ready. All defenses have been burned away. Smooth-skinned and steadily pinker at the podium. Her eyes squeezed tight. She looks like she's the one that's the infant. The host white flaggers pay this burnt... <laughs> pay this burnt public husk of a newcomer. <laughs> the ultimate Boston AA compliment. They have to consciously try to remember even to blink as they watch her listening. IDing without effort. There's no judgment. It's clear she's been punished enough. And it was basically the same all over, after all, out there. And the fact that it was so good to hear her, so good that even Tiny Ewell and Kate Gompert and the rest of the worst of them all sat still and listened without blinking, looking not just at the speaker's face, but into it, helps force Gately to remember all over again what a tragic adventure this is that none of them signed up for. <laughs> God damn. Yikes. Yeah, I thought you, we were going to You asked if it that. was going to be more chill, <laughs> and it's not going to be more chill. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, come, on, come on, dude. Pull up. <laughs> <laughs> good good place to stop. I don't know. Where are we at there? Is there maybe a little more? Yeah, there's, there's a little we're more. We're only at 23 minutes in. We can do it. We can do a little more. We got okay. a lot of book to get through. Yeah, it's true. Um, Let me re let me refine my uh, place in the end notes real quick. I lost it. Beep, beep. It's funny that like I can't, you know, we get through segments like that and I can like remember that this book is at times fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, like the um the eschaton bit. That was like fun. Yeah, because it was kids. And <laughs> yeah, and that's like funny. And then But it, then like, even at the end it wasn't you know, it was fun. Yeah, but you know, even that part, you know, the stakes the stakes go up and down. Um, you know, sometimes when it's just like Hal and Orrin talking to each other, you know, stuff like that. It it's it's uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's what makes the book great is that it, there, it, there's, it's a lot of things. It's a lot of things. All right. 
Uh, there'd been the odd couple of libations, the muscled fitness guru and the tall slope-shouldered optician slash director, often down there in the weight room till all hours, sitting on the towel dispenser, drinking, Lyle with his caffeine-free Diet Coke in condensa with his wild turkey. Mario literally standing by in case the ice bucket ran out or himself needed moral support getting to the urinal. Mario often fell asleep as the hour got severe, drifted in and out, slept upright and leaning forward, weight borne by his police lock and lead receptacle. James and Condenza was one of those profound personality change drinkers who seemed quiet and centered and almost affectless when he was sober, but would move way out to one side or the other of the human emotional spectrum when drunk and seemed to open up in a way that was almost injudicious. Sometimes libated late at night with Lyle in the newly outfitted ETA weight room, Incondensa opened up and pour his heart's thickest chyme right out there for all to be affected and potentially scarred by, e.g. one night, Mario, leaning way forward into the police lock support, drifted awake to the sound of his father saying that if he had to grade his marriage, he'd give it a C-. minus. <laughs> this seems injudicious in the extreme, potentially, though Mario, like Lyle, tends to take data pretty much as it comes. We were thinking, we were seeing that stand up last night who had that bit about how the ultimate thing to when somebody's like telling you about their life to say is, I'm sorry to hear that because you are literally sorry to. You were sorry to. You were sorry to have absorbed that information and you wish that it was no, it was not inside you that they had not poured that whatever their problems were inside of you. Yeah. Yes. I thought. You know, it was very casually delivered, but I thought that was a very profound bit. It's a, it's a, it's a good joke and yeah. and very uh, commensurate with this yeah, yeah. section. Lyle, who sometimes would start to get tipsy himself, or as himself's pores begin to excrete the bourbon, often brought some Blake out, as in William Blake, during these <laughs> all night sessions, and read in condensa Blake, but in the voices of various cartoon characters, which himself eventually started regarding as deep, which takes <laughs> us to end note one forty six. See, for example, Incondensa's first narrative collaboration with Infernatron Canada, the animated prenuptial agreement of heaven and hell made at the acknowledged height of his anti-confluential period, BS Private Release LMP. Um, I can't see that because that movie doesn't exist, yes. but I trust them. I, may, I can imagine it. All right, let's 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 get into a little more of this last, uh, I think this will not be a long, or yeah, anyway. Uh, 8th November, Year of the Depend, Adult Undergarment, Gaudiamus Igitor, which I still have not figured out how to <laughs> appropriately pronounce, and they're going to keep saying it. If it's odd that Mario Incondensa's first halfway coherent film cartridge, a 48-minute job shot three summers back in the carefully decorated janitor closet of Subdorm B with his head mount Bolex H64 and foot treadle, if it's odd that Mario's first finished entertainment consists of a film of a puppet show, like a kid's puppet show, then it probably seems even odder that the film's proven to be way more popular with ETA's adults and adolescents than it is with the woefully historically underinformed children it had been first made for. <laughs> it proved, wow, uh, ch- children's entertainment resonating more with adults. That's yeah. an interesting little prediction. Yeah. It's proved so popular that it gets shown annually now every 11-8, Continental Interdependence Day, on a wide beam cartridge projector and stand-up screen in the ETA dining hall after supper. It's part of the gala, but rather ironic, uh, ra- but, but rather ironic annual celebration of I Day at an academy whose founder had married a Canadian, and it usually gets underway about 1930 hours. The film, and everybody gathers in the dining room and watches it. And by Charles Tavis's festive fiat, which takes us to note 147, <laughs> the festivity here being due largely to the fact that both he and Gerhard Stitt returned from putting on little ETA presentations at various tennis clubs too late to have been f- informed about the degenerative eschaton free-for-all and serious Lord Ingersoll and Penn injuries, both trainer Barry Loach and pro-rector Rick Dunkel having told Avril and Stitt to be told by whichever of Nwangi and Delint first works up the pluck, and the issue of telling t- Tavis being as would-be SOP left up to Avril, who will, because Tavis has already lost a certain amount of sleep, preparing emotionally and, rhetor- and rhetorically for the impending arrival of putative moment journalist Helen Steeply, <laughs> whom he's been convinced to let on the grounds by Avril's argument that the moment office promises the profile subject and inevitable hype involve only an ETA alumnus. Avril neglected to tell Tavis she was pretty sure it was Oren, and that a certain amount of soft news publicity for ETA qua institution couldn't hurt in either the fundraising or the recruiting goodwill department. 
who will almost certainly wait and tell Tavis, who's in far too festive a mood to notice three or four younger kids ominously absent from the supper and gala, in the morning, if the poor man's to have a chance at any real sleep at all, also giving Avril time to figure out how upper-class heads can roll, and of course they must, given chaos and season-ending injuries under the direct gaze of designated big buddies, without those heads including that of Hal, who, unlike, thank God, John, was identified at the scene with that pemulous person. Uh, hmm. It's a hell of a sentence there. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was having some difficulty tracking. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm particularly looking at uh, Thank God John. I think I believe she's referring to John No Relation Wayne. Not sure why she's paying such special attention, attention to, to him. How can just tell by the dining hall's emotional gestalt that neither Stitt nor Tavis knows about the eschaton, but the mom's is next to impossible to read, and Hal won't know whether she's been told of the debacle until he is able to pry Mario away from Anton the Boogerman Doucette and get the mom's skinny right from Boo Boo Direct after the film. That moment when you don't know whether your parents know that you did something yes. wrong is one of the worst feelings I've ever had in my entire life. Yes. Uh, boy, oh boy. Where are we? Uh, okay, by Charles Tavis's festive fiat, everybody gets to two-handed snack instead of squeezing tennis balls while they watch. <laughs> you can put the tennis ball down and have snacks. Uh, and not only that, but normal ETA dietary regulations are for an hour completely suspended. And Mrs. Clark, the dietitian out in the kitchen, a former four-star dessert chef normally relegated here to protein conveyors and ways to vary complex carbs, Mrs. Clark gets to put on her floppy white chef's hat and just go sucrotically mad out in West House's <laughs> gleaming kitchen. Everybody's supposed to wear some sort of hat. Everyone Condensa positively towers in the same steeple-crowned witch's hat she teaches all her classes in every 1031. And Pemulus wears the complex yachting cap and naval braid. And pale and blotchy struck, a toque with a kind of flitty aigrette, and Hal a black preacher's hat with a stern, round, downturned brim, etc., <laughs> etc., et which takes us to end note 148. <laughs> Trolch wears an interlaced sports baseball cap, and Keith Freer a two horned operatic Viking helmet along with his leather vest, and Fran Unwin a fez, and fierce little Josh Gopnik, the white beanie with the dirty cartwheel track across it from this afternoon's debacle. <laughs> Tex Watson wears a tan Stetson with a really high crown, and little Tina Ect, an outlandishly large plaid beret that covers half her little head. The Vought twins, a freakish bowler with two domes and one brim. You remember them? Yes. Steve Stefan Wagenecht, a plastic soleil. This is just scanning at random. The headwear goes on and on, a whole topography of hats. And Carol Spodek, a painter's cap with the name of a paint company. And Bernadette Longley, a cowpack that obstructs the view of people behind her. Duncan Van Slack in a harquebus with buckle. I don't even know what the names of any of these hats are. I'm going to have to I, look them up. This is just up. him you, uh, using a, this is an excuse to list type of hats. Fucker. <laughs> Should probably also mention Avril's wearing a Fukuama microfiltration mask. It being way too early in the day for supper for her anyway. The, she got that N95 on her. Uh, Ortho Stice wears a calotte. And the USS Millicent Kent, a slanted noir-type fedora. And tall Paul Shaw way in the back, a conquistadorial helmet and escudo. And Mary Esther Thode, a plain piece of cardboard propped on her head that says hat. <laughs> Idris Arslanian's spectacular bearskin shako is held in place with a chin strap. Back to the text. Uh, hats, hats, hats. Where am I? Uh, Mario, as a director and putative author of the popular film, is encouraged to say a few words, like eight. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, everybody, and I hope you like it, is what he said this year, with Pemulus behind him making a show of putting a maraschino on top of the small twizzle of Ready Whip that O. Stice had sprayed on the top of Mario's head mount Bullocks, H64, which counts as a hat, <laughs> when the dessert course's zenith had gotten slightly out of control near the I-Day Gala's Supper's end. Those few brief words and round of applause are Mario's big public yearly moment at ETA, and he neither likes the moment nor dislikes it. Same with the untitled film itself, which really started out as just a kid's adaptation of the Onantiad, a four-hour piece of ten tendentiously anti-confluential political parody, long since dismissed as minor incandenza by his late father's archivists. <laughs> Mario's piece isn't really better than his father's. It's just different. Plus, of course, way shorter. <laughs> it's pretty obvious that somebody else in the Incandenza family had at least an amanuentic hand in the screenplay, 
but Mario did the choreography and most of the puppet work personally. His little S-shaped arms and falcate digits are perfect for the forward curve from body to snout of a standard big-headed political puppet. <laughs> and it was, without question, Mario's little square hush puppy on the H-64's operant foot treadle, the Bolex itself mounted on one of the tunnel's locked lab's husky uh, 4TL tripods across the overlit closet. Mops and dull gray janitorial buckets carefully moved out past the frame's borders on either side of the little velvet stage. And kitten plan. This sounds adorable. I know. And two older crew-cut girls sit in identical snap-brin fedoras with their arms crossed, kitten plan's right hand bandaged. Mary Esther Thode is grading midterms on the sly. Rick Dunkel has his eyes closed but is not asleep. Somebody slapped an ad hoc Red Sox cap on the visiting Syrian satellite pro and the Syrian satellite pro sits with most of the pro-rectors looking confused, his shoulder taped up with a heatable compress, being polite about the comparative authenticity of Mrs. C's baklava. <laughs> Everyone gathers and all's quiet except for the sounds of saliva and chewing, and there's the yeasty sweet smell of Coach Stitt's pipe, and ETA's youngest kid, Tina Echt, in her giant beret, gets to be in charge of the lights. Mario's Thing opens without credits, just a crudely matted imposition of fake linotype print, a quotation from President Gentle's second inaugural. Let the call go forth to pretty much any nation we might feel like calling that the, <laughs> that the, past, that the past has been torched by a new and millennial generation of Americans. Millennials. Against a full facial still photo of a truly unmistakable personage. This is the projected face of Johnny Gentle, famous crooner. This is Johnny Gentle, nay joiner, Lounge singer turned teeny bopper throb turned B-movie mainstay for two long past decades known unkindly as the cleanest man in entertainment. <laughs> the man's a world-class retentive, the late Howard Hughes kind, the really severe kind, the kind with the paralyzing fear of free-floating contamination. The either wear a surgical microfiltration mask or make the people around you wear surgical caps and masks and touch door knobs only with the boiled hanky and take 14 showers a day, only they're not exactly showers. They're with this Dermalatics brand shower-sized <laughs> hypospectral flash booth that actually like burns your outermost layer of skin off in a dazzling flash and leaves you baby butt new and sterile once you wipe off the coating of fine epidermal ash with a boiled hanky kind. <laughs> Was that all in dashes? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Trump is famously a, uh, a clean guy. Absolutely. Though I can't imagine... He's a clean guy. He's, a clean, he's one of the... I'm one, one of the, the cleanest. cleanest. <laughs> I'm one of the cleanest presidents I've ever had. Although I can't imagine that he is actually as systematic about it as like this guy being written here be, just mm -hmm. because I think... I, I can't imagine him being systematic about anything. Like, do you remember the pictures when he was running of his desk at his office? It would just always be like covered with like garbage and papers I and do, like yeah. disorder. Because you remember that? It, we, we'll talk more about Trump after this, but I, I can't imagine that that he actually has any kind of like systemic OCD about cleaning more than just like not liking to touch people or things that he considers dirty. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Right. Uh, then later in public life, a sterile toupee wearing promoter and entertainment union bigwig. Vegas schmaltz broker and head of the infamous Velvety Vocalist Guild. He's a union man. The tan he's uh, exactly like Reagan. Reagan was hard, uh, mm -hmm. president of SAG. Mm -hmm. uh, the tanned, gold-chained labor union that enforced those seven months of famously dreadful live silence, <laughs> which takes us to an, an note 149, i.e. silk-suited vocalists snapping their fingers and telling their casino audiences they were beautiful human beings, and but when it comes time to actually start crooning, the vocalists' m lips move, but nothing velvety emerges, all sound withheld. A job action, rendered even more chilling by the skill with which the Frankies and Tonys lip-sync to utter silence. And the way the beautiful casino audiences hit someplace they lived, somehow clearly responded with near-psychotic feelings of deprivation and abandonment, became a mob, almost tore lounges down, upended little round tables, threw free ice-intensive drinks, <laughs> audiences in their well-heeled majority behaving like dysfunctional or inadequately nurtured children. Wow. Back to the text. I figured let's just get a little a little uh, sense of Johnny before we yeah, yeah. leave. The total scab-free solidarity and performative silence that struck floor shows and sound stages from desert to NJ Coast for over half a year until equitable compensation formulae on certain late millennial phone order retrospective TV advertised so you don't forget order before midnight tonight type records and CDs were agreed on by management. Mm -hmm. Hence then Johnny Gentle, the man who brought GE slash RCA to heal. <laughs> 
and then thus at the millennial fulcrum of very dark U.S. times to national politics. The facial stills that Mario lap dissolves between, uh, between are of Johnny Gentle, famous crooner, founding standard bearer of the seminal new clean U.S. party, the strange-seeming but politically prescient annular agnation of ultra-right jingoist hunt-deer-with-automatic-weapons types, and far-left macrobiotics save-the-ozone rainforest whales spotted owl and high-pH waterways ponytailed granola crunchers, <laughs> a surreal union of both Rush L. and Hillary R.C. disillusioned fringes that drew mainstream media guffaws at their first convention held in sterile venue, the seemingly LaRouche-ishly marginal party whose first platform's plank had been let's shoot our wastes into space, <laughs> which takes us to end note 150. The years right around the millennium being a terrible U.S. time for waste then, ozone-wise and landfill-wise and shoddily disposed of dioxins-wise, with DT cycle annular fusion at the stage where they had the generating massive amounts of high R waste Part down a lot more pat than the consuming the waste in a nuclear process whose own waste was the fuel for the first waste-intensive phase of the <laughs> circle of reactions part. I don't totally... I, uh, whatever. I'm not a sci- I'm not a woman in STEM. <laughs> Back to the text. Uh, uh, CUSP, a kind of post-Perot national joke for three years until white-gloved finger on the pulse of an increasingly asthmatic and sunscreen-slathered and pissed-off American electorate, the CUSP suddenly swept to a quadrennial victory in an angry reactionary voter spasm that made the UWSA and LaRouchers and Libertarians chew their hands in envy <laughs> as the Dems and GOP stood on either side watching dumbly like doubles partners who each think the other surely got it. The two established mainstream parties split open along tired philosophical lines in a dark time where all landfills got full and all grapes were raisins and sometimes in some places the falling rain clunked instead of splatted and also recall a post-Soviet and jihad era when somehow even worse there was no real foreign menace of any real unified potency to hate and fear. And the U.S. sort of turned on itself and its own philosophical fatigue and hideous, redolent wastes with a spasm of panic rage that in retrospect seems possible only in a time of geopolitical supremacy and consequent silence, the loss of any external menace to hate and fear. This motionless face on the ETA screen is Johnny Gentle, third-party stunner. Johnny Gentle, the first U.S. president ever to swing his microphone around by the cord during his inauguration speech. <laughs> whose new white-suited Office of Unspecified Services retinue required inauguration attendees to scrub and mask and then walk through chlorinated foot baths at, as at public pools. Johnny Gentle managing somehow to look presidential in a Fukuama microfiltration mask, whose inaugural address heralded the advent of a tighter, tidier nation, who promised to clean up government and trim fat and sweep out waste and hose down our chemically troubled streets and to sleep darn little until he'd fashioned a way to rid the American psychosphere of the unpleasant debris of a throwaway past to restore the majestic embers, a- ambers and public fr- purple fruits of a culture he now promises to rid of the toxic effluvia choking our highways and littering our byways and grunging up our sunsets and cruddying those harbors in which televised garbage barges lay stacked up at anchor, clotted and, impo- and impotent, amid undulating clouds of pot-bellied gulls and those disgusting blue-bodied flies that live on shit. Uh, First U.S. president ever to say shit publicly, shuddering. (laughs) Rusty-hulled barges cruising up and down petroleated coastlines or laying up reeky and stacked and emitting CO as they await the opening of new landfills and toxic repositories the people demanded in every area but their own. The Johnny Gentle, whose CUSP had been totally upfront about seeing American renewal as an essentially aesthetic affair. The Johnny Gentle, who promised to be the possibly sometimes unpopular architect of a more or less spotless America that cleaned up its own side of the street. Of a new arid nation that looked out for Uno. Of a one-time world policeman that was now going to retire and have its blue uniform deep dry cleaned and placed in storage in triple thick plastic dry cleaning bags and hang up its cuffs to spend some quality domestic time raking its lawn and cleaning behind its refrigerator and dandling its freshly bathed kids on its neatly pressed mufty mufty pants' knee. Uh, A gentle behind whom a diorama of the Lincoln Memorial's Lincoln smiled down benignly. A Johnny Gentle who was, as of this minute, sending forth the call that he wasn't in this for a popularity contest. 
popsicle stick and felt puppets in the addresses audiences, assuming puzzled looking expressions above their tiny green surgical masks. A president, JGFC, who said he wasn't going to stand here and ask us to make some tough choices because he was standing here promising he was going to make them for us, who asked us simply to sit back and enjoy the show, who handled wild applause from camouflage fatigue and sandal and poncho clad CUSPs (laughs) with the unabashed grace of a real pro, who had black hair and silver sideburns just like his big-headed puppet and the dusty brick-colored tan seen only among those without homes and those whose homes had a dermalatix hyperspectral personal sterilization booth, who declared that neither tax and spend nor cut and borrow comprise the ticket into a whole new millennial era. Here, more puzzlement amongst the inaugural audience, which Mario represents by having the tiny finger puppets turn rigidly toward each other and then away and then toward who alluded to ripe and available novel sources of revenue just waiting out there, unexploited, not seen by his predecessors because of the trees. Uh, question mark? <laughs> In parentheses? Uh, who, who foresaw budgetary adipose trimmed with a really big knife. The Johnny Gentle who stressed above all, simultaneously pleaded for and promised an end to atomized Americans' fractious blaming of one another for our terrible internal troubles. Let's see how long Endnote 151 is. Actual term employed is downer type. <laughs> Should we stop there? Yes, please. Okay. Uh, <laughs> last time I looked at the clock, it was like, we, uh, we're only at 23 minutes. We can do a few more. Now it's at like 45. Oh, boy. Big, uh, anyway. Episode. But, but, oh, yeah. So, like, as you said, kind of a grab bag there. <laughs> kind of a downer in the middle. But that Johnny Gentle stuff is great. It's freaky, right? It's it's freaky because it's it's interesting because... Especially like I just yesterday recorded our episode with Matt, uh, our president's episode on Reagan and Clinton. And it's funny listening to him talk. there, doing like political satire in like the early mid 90s, like right after probably like written in Clinton's first term. Right. Yeah. Uh, But so he's clearly like drawing from Reagan as that kind of vapid. uh, um vapid actor types you know uh, former union uh like like reactionary union type that somehow exists in uh in entertainment right but so much of it is very like you know you you could see where he's gesturing towards something that would become trump anyway i was with trump like do you remember those photos like when he was eating the taco bowl yeah of course yeah how messy his desk is yeah it was always Something that that like you know I would just stare at endlessly like it was a Hironis Bosch painting or something because <laughs> it's like he you it's obvious he doesn't do anything but yeah, there's all not. this clutter on his desk yeah it's very it's, it's very, very funny like, and strange yeah. I'm I'm interested in something you just said that one of the most unique kind of political mindsets is conservative entertainer because yes. you are entertaining entertainment is. I don't know, neoliberal, I guess, or something, or just the, the idea of being, you know, it's, it's a, what, what word am I trying to think of? It's, it's slutty. Entertainment yes. is slutty. It's profligate. Uh, yes. Well, it's, you're begging to be liked. You're begging to be liked. And mm-hmm. that's um, like morally strained. It's, it, that's lo- it's a loose thing to mm-hmm. do. And then yet, often entertainment types especially once you make a certain amount of money and especially the way the business runs it's all about uh you know tightening things so you're the only person getting the money yes you know not not sharing and stuff like that it's a certain it's a certain type that's very interesting um i was talking with our our friend matthew the the other day about um also from the president's show i found out that george clooney is distantly related to uh abraham lincoln Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I mentioned that fact to Matthew and he's like more, you know, more juice in the tank of why would George, George Clooney should run for president. And we were like, you know, if he, if he went, if he Clooney went for it, I think he wouldn't have a problem getting the, uh, the democratic nomination mm-hmm. if he like really went for it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if he would be as shoe in a, uh, presidential winner as, uh, you know, Trump was in retrospect, but it's, we were talking about why it's weird that all the all the entertainers who get into politics end up being conservative. Yes. You know, Sonny Bono, Ronald Reagan, Caitlyn Jenner, Caitlyn Jenner, <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger, yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, that there is something about that, like that entertainer guy validation, mm-hmm. uh, that ends up being a conservative thing and not, and most entertainers who are mostly notoriously notoriously libs. Yeah. Don't actually end up doing anything about it other right. than hosting, Three thousand dollar a plate fundraisers, Galas, yeah. yeah, 
Right. That's why someone like a um, Cynthia Nixon was so damn confusing because mm-hmm. she's a, an an actor uh, who was basically running on like a socialist platform. Yeah. And that's like one in a million, it seems at this point. Dude, that was so I mean, not to not to like slobber all over actors running for uh, <laughs> uh, running for stuff. But that was in retrospect, like just thinking about the Cuomo's as an entity, mm-hmm. like putting her neck out there to be like, I'm going to try to take down Andrew Cuomo. Yeah. Uh, very it's brave. Kinda, it's kind of nice with it's, it. On, on a, honestly, for a Sex in the City act actress, dare I say, based. It's pretty based. Um, uh, yeah, a lot, a lot going on in this section. More, more, ho- more horror, horror, more horror. Um, uh, yeah. You think after the last segment that that it, it seemed like that whole AA segment built to that pinnacle, mm-hmm. that harrowing pinnacle, as mm-hmm. like a crescendo, and then it's like. As you're as a structuring thing, like, okay, now we like let it breathe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then like to just double dip back in and be like, actually, I got one more for you. Yeah. Um. Uh, I'm I'm noticing a lot of parallels of of metaphor and stuff. Like, for example, even just thinking about everyone listening to that uh, poor mm-hmm. uh, uh, freebase addicted woman. What are they doing? They're watching her wrapped, identifying completely and totally, and not blinking. Who mm-hmm. else is doing that in this book? People watching the entertainment. Yes. Uh, th- this I would like to lead to a theory that I'd like to propose to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Foster Wallace is thinking a lot about ecstasy in this book. Mm-hmm. The you know ecstasy of Saint Teresa, mm-hmm. that horrible story of that uh, invertebrate uh, girl who was getting diddled by her dad, uh, uh, who had that face that was like uh, or, uh, not even a facial expression, a sub facial expression of like complete. Complete and total ecstasy. Uh, Joelle Van Dyne gets in her head when she's smoking crack that she feels that way. Like she has that image of the ecstasy of St. Teresa that goes in her head. Poor Tony's ecstatic uh, hemorrhage. Yes. And and of course, everyone watching the entertainment, mm-hmm. you get that face on. And the smiley face that is out there. Yes. The, out, the, the guy out there who is going to swoop you away into a life of complete of, uh, uh, hor- depraved Horrible horror. ecstasy. Uh, yeah, hor- horrible ecstasy. And so I was mulling this over um, and thinking that what what his horror of is people who are alone, mm-hmm. ec- ecstatic and alone, mm-hmm. not connected to people. It's yes. people who are watching their television and they're not paying any, any attention to anyone mm-hmm. else around them. It's Joel who is alone in a bathroom mm-hmm. smoking drugs. It's... Uh, even I mean, like the the weird thing with the uh the invertebrate di- diddled daughter mm-hmm. is that she's being exploited. Yes, she and she cannot speak. Also, yes. she she cannot connect to anyone else because she's literally incapable of speaking or consenting. Mm-hmm. And that ecstasy is only sustainable if you are connecting with people. Yes, I see that. I think that that is a uh, a good read on one of the themes here. It's not. It's not that because I th- I think about this and, may- a lot. and maybe something in that. W- in a specific way, like one drives the other, like a, a certain form of pleasure seeking, of ecstatic pleasure seeking, mm-hmm. uh, pushes you away from people. Yes, and that there is then also perhaps some in something that he is trying to do with the book, but also like relay is that there is also kind of an ecstatic mundanity mm-hmm. that you can share with others that is just like enduring the the averageness of life. Yeah, right. This uh, uh this tr- uh. Tra- tragic uh yeah. accident that no one asked for yeah yeah and it's like it's the only to me it's like it's the only solve yeah uh of being alone is you have to not be alone you have to go to the AA meeting yeah you have to go to the meeting and talk to people mm-hmm. anyway just something i've been mulling over our friend sent us a picture from i believe a comedy <laughs> show uh on thursday or friday night that was a man the back of a man's head uh who appeared to be at this comedy show wearing a vest and a Bowler hat, a mm-hmm. bowler hat, bowler hat, bowler, a bowler hat, mm-hmm. uh, with a the a big thick paperback copy of Infinite Jest, uh, st- on the ground below his chair, which was uh kind of perfect. You know, we we are we are pro, <laughs> you know, Infinite Jest should not get uh. They say pro hat. Uh, I was gonna say we're pro Jest, obviously on the, on this podcast, but you know, please read responsibly. <laughs> yeah. Think about how you're representing the community when you're when you're <laughs> when you're out, out in public. <laughs> representing the community. Yeah, you just don't uh I mean here here's an interesting way of thinking about the way you present yourself and what you wear and, and how you like mm-hmm. go out in the world. Do you like when you go out, 
would you expect someone to take a surreptitious photo of you? <laughs> yes. And if so, think about that and think if that's something that that's you are really comfortable what, what with. Your, what your whole deal and is. And people take sur- surreptitious photos for all, all reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, just, uh, just a thought. Yeah. Just one way to go about it. Um, yeah. The the other bit of uh, contemporaneous oh, yes, uh, thing I wanted to bring up is that Naomi Osaka, I re- just read a very interesting piece about her uh, appearance at and then um, sort of not withdraw, uh, exit from the U.S. Open, which is happening mm-hmm. right now. Naomi Osaka is obviously... Uh, became very very good at tennis very young has had has won a bunch of slams uh has uh i believe was ranked number one in the world for mm-hmm. a certain period of time and she's just like completely like she had like a bad couple of games and then she gave a she talked to the media and was like i need to like specific actually let me try to look up what she actually said because she she basically said i'm paraphrasing but she was like uh, winning when I win tennis games, I don't feel happy. I just feel relieved. And when I lose tennis games, I feel very, very sad. This is not normal. <laughs> like basically, like I need to take. Like she might have retired. I, honestly, I wonder if we're entering a new era between like Simone Biles and that of like uh, athletes feeling freer to admit that the pressure that they're under is too uh, is too much. Yeah, um, which seems good. Uh, it does seem good. Yeah. Because, you know, I mean, I know, like, I do think that there is some righteous clowning on, uh, like, the idea of, like, oh, my mental health as, like, a, a, you know, pointing at everything and calling it mental health. But Naomi Osaka, for example, is someone, like, especially, I I watched some clips of her on the court, and she does seem like she's basically in agony. Yeah. Like, (laughs) of just, like, not being able to play the game the way she wants to play and having that affect her really poorly. But I think of Andre Agassi, who was under also a, a tremendous among, uh, amount of pressure. <laughs> he hated tennis. And hates tennis. What did he do? Smoke crystal meth? Like he would, like he turned it <laughs> inward, and it made it was he was yeah. worse off for it. So is, is it as like glamorous or whatever to just like re- rescind yourself from a tennis tournament and be like, uh, my uh, my head's not in it right now. The pressure is too much. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you can sort of save your life that it is, way. It is Sounds kind of funny fine. for these like high level performers where you assume that because somebody is extremely good at something so specific, like the skill of tennis, that they must enjoy it. Yeah. And it's how maybe like it could like for somebody like that, it could just be from like an early age. You got put in tennis programs and you responded well to it. And like you were just always good at it. Yeah. And like your entire life, you were like, I don't actually enjoy playing this i just happen to be very good at it yeah right because uh, you know there mu- there's got to be some kind of rush like when you're uh mm-hmm. in the nfl and you're ru- you're running down the field with like your yeah, bro like you're you know things are in your falcons out- you, uniform you know like shit's gonna go yeah. go crazy and go stupid like that's got to be kind of fun yeah but like tennis is just all stress it is i mean i was the way you were talking about that i was also remembering when we were talking about watching some kind of monster mm-hmm. and being like these guys don't seem like they're enjoying this but they are the band metallica and they have to keep and making good, new yeah. music yes and they're good at being metallica yeah but it doesn't but that doesn't necessarily mean they have to enjoy it <laughs> uh sometimes you find yourself in that position and then the, i mean the, the other thing to bring and you know up what the content must flow the content must flow yeah and i i think that's you know ne- never quit the band right yeah, yeah. uh never never quit the band and in tennis, you you are the band. Mm-hmm. It's just you out there, unless you're playing doubles, I suppose. But um, the uh, I I don't know. I I I feel terrible for her, but also it's it seems good to not yeah. torture yourself in this way, even if you are extremely good at tennis. Absolutely. Um, well, I wish her the best. Yeah. <laughs> and I hope people weren't mean or racist to her. For well, they, yeah, probably they were. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that seems to happen yeah. to, uh, to, uh, her and, and folks like her. Yes. Non, non-white people who, who quote, make a decision or quote, he- take agency. Yeah. Take agency, <laughs> uh, uh, take control of their yeah, people lives. People seem to get really mad about that for some reason. I wonder why that is. Huh? Well, like people like to trot out. They're like, oh, well, so-and-so did this, like, you know, when uh, Simone Biles dropped out, everyone was like, yeah. "Oh, Carrie Strug, uh, she did she did a vault on a broken ankle." Yeah, and it was like, "Yeah," and she shouldn't have. She could have like fucked up her entire yeah. life forever. Like yeah. she could have like never walked again if yeah. she had hit things the wrong way. Yeah, it's not like look, this other person suffer. It's like, well, I maybe she shouldn't have. I don't yeah, know. 
Uh, Olympics seem bad in general. Yeah. Maybe pro- maybe all of professional sports. All the professional, yeah. I mean, there's at a central level, there's no way to get around when you're doing professional sports on this high of a level that it's all just gladiatorial stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all just gladiator games, but just guess, gussied up in different uh, types of, uh, uh, um, uh, I don't know, costumes. Mm-hmm. We all, <laughs> in the end, just want to see pe- two people fight. Let them fight. Let them fight. Which is why in the I I buy Felix's obsession with UFC is like perhaps the most honest sport. Mm-hmm. Right. I, re- I I remember when UFC became like popularized mm-hmm. and it was like the the thing the, like the selling point was like you can do whatever you want in there, man. Yeah. You can just fucking like kick them in the <laughs> just face. Go wild. Yeah. There's like no no rules, just right. <laughs> and uh, like everyone being so hype about that, like yeah, you just fucking kill some guy. Mm-hmm. Everyone's always leaving that octagon covered in blood. Yeah. We love to see it. We do, unfortunately, as hu- as a human species, love <laughs> to do. see it. And that's one of our We're, big problems. We are horny, violent animals. We are yeah. out here fighting, fucking, and drinking DiSorono. So. Yes. Well, let's pour up another glass of DiSorono <laughs> and, uh, and thanks wrap for, this one Thanks up for today. hanging in. This podcast is bought, brought to you by DiSorono. Yes. It's fun. All right. Bye.